Do you have your Bible? Say yeah. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're going to continue our series in the Lucian Gospel, Luke chapter 9. And today we're going to add three passages of Scripture that are commonly divided. We're going to put them into one conversation today. And we pick up our conversation in Luke 9 in the B part of verse 43. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 50. Luke 9. 44 through 50, 43b through 50, somewhere around there. If you have it, say yeah. yeah. If you're still looking, say hold up, wait a minute. All right, give you just a second. Luke chapter 9, verse 43b through 50. It's under the heading in your ESV Bible that says Jesus again foretells his death. The text reads like this, but while they... That's the disciples and the people around the miracle that Jesus had just performed were marveling at everything that he was doing. Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then... An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him beside his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is also the great. And then John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. And Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The title of this message today is The Lowest, The Greatest, and The Rest. And what we're going to do today is talk about right positioning in the kingdom of God. This is going to be a teaching and a conversation about sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, about humility, our humility, about comparison, about this common struggle of ours to figure out where we fit, but mostly about understanding how to put all things in the right position. Would you bow your heads and pray with me today? Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you for this word. I ask that you would open this text. You'd open our hearts and our minds to receive from you. God, it's been a tough week for me, and I'm asking right now that you would remove me from this equation. You give me a sense of peace, and that you use me exactly as you see fit. Amen. If you're taking notes today, I want to challenge you with a big idea. In fact, Gio, I want you to know this big idea right now. Uh, the big idea today is this. If you would put Jesus in the right place, everything else will fall into place. I know it sounds simple and trite, but let me just say it to this side of the room because y'all might get it. If you would put most of your attention and focus about putting Jesus into his proper position in your life, then everything else in your life will work itself out into the proper position. I, I want you to know that this is paramount to your success as a believer. Because most of us struggle with where Jesus sits in our life. We put him in the wrong position. You said, no, I don't, Pastor. I praise him as Lord and Savior. Yes, but you don't act like he's Lord and Savior. Amen. 
Most of us will confess him as Lord and Savior, but we will not live as Lord and Savior. We will, we will, we will live like he's a part-time God when we pretend that he's a full-time God. Amen. Or we'll give too much of our attention to people who have no power and lose sight of the one who has all power in our lives. Some of us just plain get distracted by the people around us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And today we're going to talk about how to put Jesus rightly where he belongs so that everything else falls into place or doesn't bother us when it struggles to fall where it belongs. Amen? Before we do that, I want to ask you a big question. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked through this text where Jesus had just begun to reveal to his disciples why he came. It was actually in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus began to articulate his mission. And he said that he would suffer many things and he would be delivered and be betrayed. And he was just, just hinting to the disciples about the end game of the mission. And here in this text today, we have the continuation or the second foretelling of his death and the end game of his, his ministry. And I guess the big question that all of us have to ask is, why would he do this? If you read through the text, remember when we studied this a couple weeks ago when Jesus began to foretell his death, they didn't get it. Do you remember that? He explained to them what he came to do, that he came to die, that he came to be betrayed and delivered and suffer, and, and that it would be nasty and dirty. And not one of them understood it the way he explained it. Every one of them was confused and befuddled, and they missed it. They missed it. And so he moved on, just like a good teacher does. He drops a bomb in the room, and he's like, nobody? All right, let's keep going. And then he comes back to it. And the truth is, is that if I were the Messiah, thank God I'm not, I wouldn't have come back. I'd have been like, that thing is way over their head. It's going to take months for us to get back to that. And yet Jesus doesn't. Jesus jumps right back into the conversation again. And so we must, as believers, ask why. Why now? Why again? Why so quick? You remember last week we were talking about this miracle between Jesus and the boy with the unclean spirit. Remember, we, we looked at this spiritual attack on this boy and understood the demonic battle plan that we all face. Do you remember the four things? There was, there was the demons seized the boy, they convulsed the boy, they shattered the boy, and tormented the boy. Do you remember these four? And do you remember how we talked about how Jesus was confronted by this man who above the cacophony of voices that called out for him said to Jesus, Rabbi! I have a son, and he's my only son. Remember how I hinted to you that that probably got Jesus' attention because he knew, rightly positioned, he was an only son. And I want you to see how in this moment from last week, the miracle that Jesus performed actually kick-started Jesus' teaching in the conversation we're having today. You see, throughout the text, there are type and shadow Literary devices. The Bible is broken down into many categories. The biggest is the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we've got the Pentateuch and the historical letters. We've got, we've got the major prophets and the minor prophets. We've got the poetry. We've got these beautiful iterations of wisdom. And, and then we've got the, the New Testament. It's broken down into the four Gospels and then a whole, whole series of epistles, letters written by apostles, some written to congregations, some written to individuals. And then it's all capstoned by the revelation of the coming of the Messiah written by John when he's in exile in Patmos. And the Bible is written in such a fashion 
that it's not one piecemeal chapter after another. It's written by one God who started with the end in mind and then wrote back to the beginning. And because that's the way our God works, because he was and is and always will be, everything in the text is aligned and connected. In fact, the longer that you walk with Jesus and understand Jesus, the more that you will see Jesus in the text when Jesus is not explicitly mentioned in the text. Am I teaching today? Some of you will read about Jesus in Revelation and understand that sounds just like the conversation from Genesis. You'll understand here when Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, it's a reference to the Daniel iteration of an understanding of the one who is to come who will have all authority. The Bible is full of what we call type and shadow, the way in which God previously hints at, previously illuminates, and otherwise prophesies of the Messiah yet to come. And it's throughout the text. Adam, the first man. Jesus, the second man. Joseph, the one who ruled over a nation and then redeemed his family. Moses, the great deliverer. Joshua, Yahshua, who led the people into the promised land. And the list goes on and on and on. And it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. In fact, throughout the New Testament, there are hints and types and shadows. And this conversation from last week is just one of them, except for that this one isn't meant to encourage you and I to see Jesus. This type and shadow provokes Jesus himself to go deeper in his teaching. If you remember, Jesus was standing and a man cried out and said, I have an only son who is under attack by the demonic forces of this world. Jesus in that moment would have recognized that he was an only son soon and very soon to be under attack by the demonic forces of this world. The man says, my son, when he comes under this attack, he's, he's seized. And I can imagine in my sanctifying mind that J Jesus would have remembered the day to come in Mark 14 when the Bible says that the guards encircled him and they seized him. He says, Jesus, when, when, when the demons have my, my son, they not only seize him, but they begin to convulse him. And I can imagine my sanctified mind that Jesus would have saw into the future in John 19 when he knew that he would be tortured and beaten when he was flogged. And in that moment, remember, we learned that the word convulse meant to tear when his flesh was torn from his body in suffering. Jesus saw the seizing and the tearing. He says, Jesus, and then he shatters him. He, he takes my son and he causes him to cry out in, in, in pain and, and, and then to grow silent because he recognizes that this is the end. This is as dark as it ever be. And I imagine that Jesus is already foreseeing his death on the cross in the moment that he lays there and he hangs there in, 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 in I think it's Mark 15, where he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he says, and if it's not... Bad enough, Jesus, when they're with my son, they seize him and convulse him and shatter him, and then they, they just torment him while he's stuck where he is. Imagine Jesus thinks about that moment when he's on the cross, and two thieves hang beside him, and one of them begins to torment him in his death. If you're really the Messiah, why don't you get yourself off of this? not knowing that Jesus was dying for him. 
I can imagine that Jesus has undertaken this great miracle and in the process is already seeing his death. And so that's why immediately upon delivering the boy, Jesus doesn't look for the accolades. He doesn't pause for the praise. He gets right back on mission and he turns to his disciples and says, the son of man is soon to die just like this. You see this picture? Jesus is the one who is the highest and he begins to articulate how he will become the lowest. He tells the disciples to pay attention, which I love. If you ever watch a preacher, every preacher has their own device when they're trying to get the room. I have like a bunch of them. They're verbal tics. Not one of them has any marrow, but it's like, y'all with me? You <laughs> I have one pastor friend, he tells the church, look at me. Just like this, he points to his face, look at me. It's very authoritative, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for all that. Jesus uses the same device. He notices that perhaps in this moment that the disciples may still be enamored. In fact, that's what the text says in verse 43. It says they were all astonished to the majesty of God. And I can imagine that every one of them is like, oh my gosh. They've begun to talk to each other. Did you see that? Oh my gosh, this is nuts. And Jesus says, hey, 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 look at me. Soon the Son of Man will be handed over into the hands of men. Oh my God. Jesus uses his preferred way to identify himself, Son of Man. From Daniel, the one who has all power, all government, and all authority. And he says, I, who have all power, will soon fall into the powerless hands of men. It makes no sense, does it? Most assuredly, every one of these disciples would have, if not verbally, certainly internally asked, how can one who just created that miracle fall victim and die? And it's in the words that he uses that we have to pay attention to. Jesus doesn't say he'll be kidnapped. He doesn't say it will be unjust. He doesn't say it's a conspiracy against him. This is all wrong. It's bad. Jesus never once uses suspicious language about the mission at hand. In fact, Jesus always lays it out in very positive terms. It, it, when he talked about it in verse 22, he said that he'd be delivered, a term that meant to be hand-delivered, one of care and one of gentility. And here in this moment, he says, turned over. He uses this phrase to explain to them, delivered again, that he, that he, he, He's going to be a willing participant in this thing. This matters for you and I to understand Jesus' participation in his mission. You've heard it said Jesus was killed by the Jews. Have you ever heard that? The Romans killed Jesus. He was murdered on that cross that day. And he suffered for you. You've heard that. None of those are true. Jesus wasn't killed. Jesus wasn't kidnapped. Jesus wasn't murdered. This was Jesus' plan. Now, I love this conversation here between the disciples and Jesus. He says, pay attention to me. And they're like, all right, here we go. And he says this thing. 
that makes no sense. And the Bible says they don't get it. But better yet, it says this, they did not understand. (laughs) None of us ever understand, right? And then here's the cool part. It says they did not understand because it was concealed from them. Jesus is once again articulating a universal truth that must be said in the moment in which it must be said. It's provoked by a miracle, a type and shadow, so that the people can see there's something going on here. And Jesus says it when it needs to be said, but because they're not yet ready to fully understand it, he hides it from them for just a second. Now I'm teaching, we're not talking about life application just yet, but I'm trying to teach you to understand this is the way that God works and he's allowed to work this way. Mm. One of the things that most of us struggle with is, God, I don't get it. Make it clear to me. And I want to tell you, sometimes God is whispering this response. You're not ready. Don't you wish you knew the end? Don't you wish what tomorrow held? Amen? Am I talking to the room? Don't you wish you knew whether you already had that job? Wouldn't it be so much easier if you knew if this relationship was going to work out? Wouldn't it be great, parents, if we knew if our kids were going to turn out good? But we don't because we're not ready. Because if we knew the end during the beginning, we wouldn't be reliant on the one who started the end or the beginning. Amen. And so Jesus starts to speak these truths so that they will sit in the hearts of these men. When things come to pass, they'll come to understand it. It will be a prophecy fulfilled. But they're not yet ready. Jesus holds back some of this information from their understanding so that they're not overwhelmed, so they don't lose sight, so they don't struggle in trusting him. That is his mission with you today. You need to hear me clearly. God is not in the business of granting wishes or answers. He's in the business of getting you to trust him, period. Amen? And so he, he hides it from them. But in the same token, Jesus' interaction with these men is a beautiful picture of what leadership really looks like. It's such a cool model that Jesus promotes in this moment with his disciples. You have to understand, Jesus has just shifted the way in which his ministry works. Up until this point, it's been mostly teaching and it's been healing. But suddenly, last week we discovered that he was presented with an unclean spirit. And Jesus demonstrates not only this ability to heal and to teach in wisdom, he demonstrates a power over the supernatural that in a time like this, when the intersection between humane and divine was of paramount importance to the people, Jesus is suddenly revealing himself as more than just a teacher. And in doing so, he delivers a boy from an unclean spirit that everyone can see. And the Bible says the crowd reacts, and at no point does Jesus engage in the reaction. He just transitions to more of the teaching. He's demonstrating to the disciples, soon and very soon you'll be used for the kingdom and you will do great and mighty things. Please do not become enamored by the crowd's response to great and mighty things. We get to train a lot of people in our church. And uh, I've gotten the opportunity to walk with some men and women who are incredibly gifted. And the single most powerful device against people who are called into ministry is vanity. It's pride. I mean, the moment someone gets a little taste of their gifting, (laughs) they are eating full meals of their gifting. They're just like, I am awesome. This is amazing. Have you seen me lately? (laughs) 
And Jesus is like, oh, hold on, wait a minute, just a second. Before any of you, this is what he said, because nothing's even really happened of great measure, save for the first send out. He says, I'm about to send you out to do even greater things. And before any of that really gets to your head, stay on task, please. Jesus creates this great miracle, and then he begins to teach. And then he teaches by teaching them what leadership looks like to keep moving forward and never stop for the celebration of the parade, but just to keep grinding, for lack of a better term. But he also becomes really transparent in this moment. Again, he starts to share new information with them that they may not yet understand. But because he loves them and he wants them to be together, that's why he shares this information. I want you to understand, and this is just a teaching for all of us, whether Beacon is home or one day you find yourself in another church, a good understanding of healthy relationships with leaders. Or how about this? Super simple. Healthy leaders provide clarity authenticity, and transparency. Jesus is saying this, hey, remember why I mentioned that I was going to die? And they're like, yeah, we already forgot about that. That's crazy. <laughs> nope. We're going to talk about that again. He's not leaving them in the dark. Ooh, come on now. Remember, Jesus is not using these disciples to get where he needs to be and then being like, oh, the last day, by the way, um, it's a whole been a death mission. I hope that didn't freak you out. No, what he does is he says every step of the way, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. Now, you may not fully understand it. In fact, I'm going to have to conceal a little bit for you so you don't get overwhelmed. But the truth of the matter is, is that I'm telling you the truth of the matter at all times. That's good leadership. And no matter where you are, whether it be your work or your fellowship or your friends or at a church, people who lead in mystery or concealing what's happening, that's dangerous. Y'all with me? Good leaders tell the truth truth. Y'all with me? It's so simple, right? And when you think about it, you're like, yes, duh. But you know what? We give leaders this crazy grace, especially in the church. We're like, well, they don't have to tell everybody everything. Well, maybe, but it'd be nice if they told us something. Like, where is the money being spent? Like, I'm over here trying to raise $100,000, and I know some of y'all have been like, I'm watching to see what shoes he has on this week. That's for sure. Tell you that much before I tie the nickel. No, here's the deal, right? Good leadership is honest and tells the truth. So I tell you what we're trying to raise the money for. And here's the deal. I love you. I will tell you if we don't raise the money. Because some churches will be like, we're trying to raise a million dollars. And we raise $12. And they're like, we, we did it. Yeah, we did it. No, if we don't do it, we, don't, we won't do it. I'll tell you. And if we do it, I'll tell you. And I'll tell you where the money goes. Because it's, it's God's money, not mine. Y'all with me? Good leadership is honest and transparent. Jesus is already modeling this for the disciples before they go. And what he does is he says, I came to die. I who am high am about to be brought low so that those who trust in me will be brought high. Now, remember, the disciples never like hearing this death conversation from Jesus. Not once. Because they still kind of miss who he is. Amen? They all still think he's going to be an earthly king. A couple of the disciples think he's literally here to overthrow Rome. And they're just tolerating the religious hocus pocus until he does. And so he's continually being like, no, the religious hocus pocus is the deal, bro. Like, Rome's going to be its own thing. 
And when he has this conversation, one of the reasons that people avert it is because it's difficult to think that someone they love and whom they have trust will also succumb to death. And so they're, they're struggling with the death conversation. But Jesus doesn't struggle with the death conversation because he doesn't see it as a troubling conversation. For Jesus, every time he utters the fact that he's going to die, it's not the end but just the beginning. For Jesus, every utterance of death is a confession of life for those whom he loves. In fact, it's like the sweetest love letter he could write. I want you to be there in the moment. After he sets the boy free, can you in your imagination see the dad's reaction? His only son restored? Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, do you see how the father loved his son? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the son of man will be delivered into the hands of men. It couldn't be more beautiful or plain. I, I came to die that you might never die. And what's the best part? The disciples completely miss it. <laughs> Watch this. He drops this beautiful bomb. It's wonderful. It's poetic. Through the lens of history, we read it and we're like, sweet Savior. And then it says, and then an argument arose amongst the disciples. Wait, about who was the greatest of them. Are you with me? Jesus is like, I love you more than anything and I'm giving my life. And Peter and John are like, no, he loves me more, bro. I'm way better. And James is like, yes, but I'm so much smarter. And Thomas is like, I'm the one who uses reason. And Bartholomew is like, why is my name so hard to pronounce? Like they're arguing in a moment and trying to figure out where they fit. Because Jesus has just talked about him being the lowest and like all humans engaging with a conversation with God, they twist it and get it upside down and they're like, well, but who is the, the greatest? Jesus, if you love us, which one? Excuse me, I won't tell them either. Who's the greatest of us? It's funny, right? And yet such a beautiful picture of the way in which every single human struggles in our relationship with God. Jesus speaks life. And because it's eternal, it's not always easy to understand. You ever read your Bible and know it's good but don't totally understand how it all fits together? You read one of those Proverbs and you're like, beautiful, I think. I'm not sure if I understand it. <laughs> right? And rather than ask for clarity, right, rather than lean right in, rather than our first response being, Lord, I, I, I believe, but help my unbelief, we jump into the comment section to engage in conversation with people who probably can't provide the answers. The disciples hear from Jesus and then they start arguing, not with Jesus, but with each other. Just like when people start talking about the things of God, or they misquote Bible verses, either in a conversation or on social media. And what we don't do is go read the Bible for ourselves and then just close both the Bible and the laptop. No, we jump in. That's not what it says. 
this desire or this lack of desire to understand Jesus more clearly, it creates a desire to be understood more clearly in the world around you. It's 100% natural for everyone in this room to have an internal desire to be seen and respected, honored. In fact, every one of us here has some level of ambition. We want to be noticed. Am I right? I mean, I don't know anybody that's like, no, I never want to be seen. Every one of us wants to have some place of value in the world. And the problem is that this, this, this desire for value oftentimes gets our attention off the one who, who has the value. The Bible says that Jesus perceives, check this out, it's so good. It says, they start to argue about who is the greatest. Verse 47, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their heart, not listening to the words that they speak, but knowing what they feel, starts to have a conversation with them. Here's what Jesus is noticing about their hearts. They've become prideful about being a part of Jesus's inner circle. Remember that he had sent them out to do great and mighty things, and now they're his best buddies while he's just done this magnificent thing, and every one of them is beginning to think about where they fit in relationship to the world around them and, in specifics, to the way in which the world sees them in their relationship to Jesus. And so Jesus understands that this pride has taken place. Now, hear me. Pride always starts with an ambition for honor. You know that pride has begun to start its it's, it's hold in your life. If you start to feel slighted when people don't give you the respect that you expect in every situation. If you walk into a room and people don't immediately greet you the way that you want to be greeted, and you think, do they know who I am? Your pastor's going to tell you the truth. Ready? No, they have no idea who you are. And they don't care. Pride starts with a desire to be seen as something of value, which isn't bad, but left to run its course, pride always ends in a zero-sum game that says this is who's of value and this is who lacks value. That's what pride does. Pride essentially takes us from wanting honor to thinking we deserve all honor. That's why pride is the one sin that God actively opposes. The Bible says he gives greater grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. God fights prideful people here on earth. Amen. God doesn't punish sin, just so you know. God does not punish sin on the earth. You make a mistake, you're left to the consequences of this world, or you're covered in the blood. Those are the two options. God does not punish sin now, so you can kill that, except if it's pride. God fights pride. That's why people that are puffed up struggle because God is not allowing or not willing to allow those of us who think we belong on the throne anywhere near the throne. Because I don't know if you've checked yourself lately, but you're terrible at being my God. <laughs> you haven't answered one prayer. Amen. And so God, seeing that pride has begun to take root, he uses this beautiful illustration of the purity of a child to combat this pride that is starting in there. And I need you to see this beautiful picture. The disciples are starting to argue, and they're using all the right language so that Jesus doesn't know who they are, but Jesus sees right into their heart, and Jesus calls a child over. And he stands a child right next to him. 
And he says, he of you who would receive him receives me. This term receive would be understood to, to welcome, to care, to tend, and to serve. Jesus is telling a room full of men and a patriarchal, agrarian society in which children are seen as those with the least value because they produce the least resources. He of you who would humbly submit and serve the child gets me. This is downright offensive, just so you know. See, today we think of child, children as incredibly valuable. Amen? There's a whole, whole movement within the body of Christ, and rightfully so, where we fight for the right for life and the sanctity of life and the value of life. Amen? We understand now that all life is of great value, especially those who are innocent. Do you know where that modern ethic came from? Jesus. Jesus is the one that taught us that value in personhood was not dictated by the production of the person or the status of the person. It was that they were a person made in the image and likeness of God. But see, this isn't the, day, this isn't the, the common understanding in the day and age in which Jesus is interacting right now. And so when he turns to them and he says, you all want to know who's the most important? If you'll serve the most important, you'll get the most important. Here's, here's what he's trying to push at in this moment. If you would be willing to serve someone whom you think has no value, you will fully understand what it means when I, who have all value, served you. Y'all with me? He says, in fact, what I'm actually trying to push you is to understand if you could see this child as having value in spite of the fact that he or she has not earned any of my affection or love, then you will begin to tap into the understanding of our Father's love for you. He loves you because you're you, not because you earned it, not because you showed up, not because you did anything special, simply because you're alive. That's why he loves you and you have value. He says, if you would receive this child, you would receive me. And if you would receive me, you get the big guy. I also want you to understand that Jesus is putting every one of us into the position of a child as well. If you've ever been around a child who's not had the best upbringing, they're not very picky. Amen? In fact, you ever meet a child who's walked through some dark seasons and you give them something to eat, they, they, they don't put a lot of mandates on about that food and how it needs to be prepared. In fact, I've never met a child who struggled who said, oh, this is lukewarm, I'm going to need it piping hot and a side of bread, sourdough. No, in fact, most children aren't very picky. Well, it's not until we teach them to be picky. Amen? He's saying this, if, you, if you'd be willing to receive without mandates on how you receive, you could receive just about anything in the kingdom of God. But most of us, when we pray, most of us, when we look to receive, we say, Lord, here's what I need and here's how it needs to be delivered. Here's the timeline, here's the color and shape, and I'd love it if you had it in periwinkle blue because it will match the drapes. Amen. Woo! 
Amen. He's saying this in this moment. I need you to understand that none of you, hear me, none of you deserve anything. And if you would be willing to receive from God anything, then you have the opportunity to receive everything. Y'all with me for a second? This is the hard push from Jesus. He came that you might have life, not because you earned it, but because he gave it to you freely because he's good, not because you're good. And he says, if you would just stretch out your hands and receive, I would pour out from you blessings you have not room enough to receive. I've heard this metaphor before, and I I just think it's perfect. It says, if you you think you deserve a seat at the table, you might deserve a stool. If you think you deserve a stool, you might need a mat. If you think you need a mat, you might belong in the mud. But if you can receive in the mud, you belong at the table. Oh, that we might be the kind of people that said, whatever you have for me, that's what I want. You said to seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. That's where I'm going. Amen. Here's the best part. Jesus drops another beautiful teaching about position and humility. And the disciples totally miss it. Keep reading. Verse 49. Jesus says, the lowest of you, the least, would be the greatest. And then John says, I saw somebody teaching and I told them to stop. Read your Bible. John responds to the last, the least teaching, the teaching about position, how the kingdom is inverted, how the last shall be first and the first shall be last, the least or the greatest. He's a picture of him. He says, I'm the greatest and I go lowest. And which one of you would be lowest would also be greatest. And John says, we were walking away the other day and I saw a guy who doesn't go to our church and he was praying and I told him, shut up because he doesn't belong to our church. Do you like that, Jesus? John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said, don't stop him. The one who's not against you is for you. It's just like one more time where the disciples, so close to the beauty of revelatory teaching of Jesus, again, are so far off the mark. Why do I keep hammering this nail? Because when you miss the mark, I want you to be encouraged. You're in the perfect position. When you're in this church and they're just like, they, you know, just, you just hear a good word and worship is on point and someone prays for you and it just, it's just perfectly the way you want to hear it. And then you go out and you mess up. Yeah, welcome to the human Christian experience. Amen. You are not worse than anyone else in this room. You do not not get it. You're just like us in the process of being refined and sanctified. And he's so faithful that he'll teach you here and if you miss it, he'll teach you here and if you miss it, he'll keep teaching you here and here and here and here and here. John says, we saw somebody who's not really part of our crew and he was actually doing some pretty amazing work in your name, but because he, he wasn't one of us, we put a stop to it. 
it's, it's, like, it's like John is already beginning the curse of denominational division. He's like, well, if it's, if it's not us, it must be wrong. This curse here is the same curse that affects the rest of us in the body of Christ here today. What about them? Aren't they doing it wrong? Don't they miss the mark? Or, or, or worse, we're the only ones that have it right. It's a good thing you got to Beacon. <laughs> what a wasted years you had, huh? Thank God you're here. I will save you. That's what we say without saying it, don't we? It's good for you to finally be in the one church in the whole history of the world and finally got it right. Hopefully we'll be able to mechanize this and make a thousand campuses with my screen on big TVs forever and ever. <laughs> no, it's the beginning of divisional, denominational division. It's John in this moment not understanding the concept that Jesus is putting forth to say humility is the key. John is saying, I don't yet want to be humble. I want to be part of the inner circle. I want to be prideful. I want to be high and lifted up. I want you to tell me that we're special. I want to do that. And if it takes me putting them down for me to be lifted up, I'm willing to do that. And this still exists today. There are entire people, there are entire ministries, there are entire churches, there are bazillion podcasts that dedicate their, ready, ministry to pointing out the misery of other people. I'm going to tell you this right now. It's true. We are called to call out false teachers. Amen? Wrong doctrine and heresy is meant to be spotted, corrected, and rebuked. But if that is your ministry... You missed it. We are all called to call out false teaching as a part of our ministry of love and grace and truth. So when someone says the wrong thing, you can go, <laughs> you know how I love you, right? And they're like, yes, I totally know you love you. Cool. That ain't the Bible. I don't know what that is. That sounds weird. It's not the Bible. That's how we call out false truth. But what we don't do is build it where there's an us versus them mentality that says we have it right and they have it wrong. Because in doing so, we not only divide the church, we dishonor the bridegroom of the church. Do you know how many people I've met who don't believe in Jesus? And the number one reason they don't like Jesus and they don't like the church is because we don't like each other. They're like, why would I go to your church? You people are so mean to each other. And I'm like, you, you got a point. We're pretty tough on each other. And when Jesus teaches to the disciples, they shall know you by your love, no wonder we're under this kind of attack. The people outside the church don't have to reconcile with the truth of the church because the truth in the church looks like we don't know what the truth is. We seem to just argue nonstop. And Jesus is... Well, he's quick to tear it down. Notice that when John tells them about this man that they saw... Who uses Jesus' name? Jesus doesn't say, well, well, who was it? Where, where did it happen? What was he saying? Was it, is it that guy with the... No, Jesus says, don't stop him. You mean to tell me that someone's out there carrying on the same thing that we're doing here? Yes. Well, then what are you doing? Just let them run with it. But they might not be perfect. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Neither are you. And yet I still let you hang around with me. <laughs> Amen? 
Jesus nips it right in the bud. He says, no, don't stop them. And here's how you know whether or not to stop them. He says, the one who is not against you, actively engaged in fighting against you and the Jesus ministry that you carry out, the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, the one who is not attacking you and your God-given ministry, guess what? They're for you. That's a lot of people, actually. Did you know that? Jesus is saying, I need you to understand, the only people you need to stop, confront, and challenge are the people who are actively attacking you. Now, most of us have a conflated understanding of the amount of haters in our life. Amen? Some of y'all think a lot of people hate you. It's just because you're unpleasant. They don't hate you. You're just genuinely. Amen. Welcome to Sunday at the 9 a.m. You don't have as many haters as you think. You don't have as many people who are actively attacking God and your ministry in you. Amen? And what that means is if there's a few of them, there are few people against you, which means there are so many people for you. You mean to tell me that when I walk into my family's house on Thanksgiving this weekend, they're not all devils? No, they're not all devils. They're just regular people who are desperate to hear the gospel. In fact, they're for you. Yes, I know some people are frustrated with your change and the fact that you don't drink anymore and the fact that God's making you holy is challenging their understanding of their own personal holiness. But guess what? They're not actively fighting against you, which means they're for you. And if they're for you, you need to be for them and walk with them. You are so much more powerful than you think. There are a lot more people rooting on your salvation than you think. There's a lot of people in your life, past, present, and future, who seeing what God is doing in your life are like, man, that's awesome. Let me give you a story and then we're going to worship. You guys can come out. I grew up in Broomfield, which is a little town just north of here. And um, when I... When I came of age and went to college, I started to use drugs pretty significantly. And, and I, I started this long history of drugs and drug abuse. And, and, um, and I heard a ton of people, my parents most specifically. And, and they're here today, thank you, by the grace of God. And, um, and then when God began to heal my life and redeem me, one of the things that really held me back was the fear of running into people from my past. I was always afraid I'd like run into one of the people that I had cheated, lied to, or stolen from and what they might do. And in recovery, they tell you to make amends. And if you've ever walked through recovery, that's the one most of us try to skip. No, thank you. I'd rather not. That's incredibly embarrassing. And no. And like every good recovering addict, I tried to skip it as many times as I could. But God has this funny way of bringing the people that you need to make amends to back into your life. And over the last 13 years of sobriety, on a nearly weekly basis, God has sent someone from my past back into my life. A Facebook message, an Instagram like, seeing them on the street or in the airport, running into them at a football game. And every time I see a familiar face from my past, my heart does the exact same thing. Tell me if you do this sheer panic for a half second. I'm just like, oh, God, we're going to fight right here at the store. She's like, what are you doing? Chanel's looking at me like, why are you in fight mode? I'm like, I'm not. It's the gap, and I want to play it safe. I'm not sure. And heretofore, 
every time. Without fail. Hey, man, it's so good to see what God has done in your life. Now, some of them don't believe, and so they follow it with, I don't believe in the God stuff, but I'm glad it works for you. You have far more people in your corner than you think. If you would just put Jesus where he belongs, with the highest at the lowest, and follow his lead to be the least, he'll make you the greatest, and everything else will fall into place. Would you stand to your feet? Let's worship today. I want to pray for you in just, for just a moment before we sing. Lord, today every one of us faces the same battle. The battle of pride, the battle of comparison and positioning. Where do we belong and how do we fit? God, today I ask that right now in the name of Jesus, you'd cast out the ambition for honor, the desire to be seen, that you'd remove from us the burden of self, that you'd replace it with a burden for you, that in every day and in every way we would properly place you at the throne of our lives and say, for if God be the greatest and I be the lowest, the rest doesn't matter. In Jesus' name, amen.